Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Aaron Coulter and I'm the news editor at Resident Advisor. Our guests this week come from Ninja Tune, which is one of those labels, like Warp Records or Mew, that is a bedrock of electronic music. I spoke with founders Matt Black and John Moore and managing director Peter Quick, three men who have been instrumental in building Ninja Tune into a powerhouse independent operation with offices on both sides of the Atlantic. This year marks the 25th anniversary of Ninja Tune, so we thought the time was perfect to discuss the label's past, present and future. You can find our full archive of exchanges on resonantadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. An exchange with Ninja Tune, up next. like to start by asking you to paint a picture of Ninja Tune in 2015. Peter, as managing director, would you say the, the label is in good health? Yeah, we're in very good health. I mean, there have been lots of ups and downs, I guess, but generally we've been um, growing and expanding, developing our roster. And I think that, yeah, the last few years definitely have been probably the most exciting in terms of developing the Ninja Tune roster and Big Dada's had a, a big surge recently and Counter is also exciting and uh, Technicolor as well, new label is, is just coming into its own, got some great projects coming on that. So, And can, can you sort of break down the, the division of labour at Ninja Tune as a company these days in terms of how things are structured? Do you mean how the the people at the company or exactly yeah so there's quite a lot of us now so uh we've got people who do a and r we've got people who look after promotions people who look after um, marketing people look after publishing and copyright and shipping and distribution and sync licensing and all sorts of things so i mean is that that's is that specific enough? I mean, there's, it's, there, we do everything a record label does, I think. And there are those are lots of things. Royalty accounting for our artists, paying our artists. You know, there's, there's quite a few. And the reason I ask is that it seems like quite um, a really kind of strong operation. Could, could you, do you know off the top of your head how many employees are in, involved? Yeah, with yeah, it's about 45. So we've got about 40 in London and uh, five in LA. Yeah, doing all sorts of things, as I say. So, yeah, I mean, it's been growing 
it grows every year. There's usually some extra people every year just because we find when we're doing, we're releasing more records or we want to do more licensing or we feel like something should be tighter or we need to account, you know, more accurately or, or whatever. And John and Matt, can you tell me a bit about your role with Ninja Tune in 2015 and how that sort of developed in uh, comparison to previous years? Well, our roles really changed since the founding of the label, which is 25 years ago when it was just John and me in a little office in Livingston Studios. And when Pete came in, he really took over running the label, which we'd been previously doing everything ourselves. And so we, from that time, we've increasingly kind of got on with the cold cut side of things. And I guess we're sort of you know, figureheads and spokesmen for the label as such, but actually it's down to Pete and the team there to do the hard work of running the label and we do our cold cut thing we make music we play in our laboratory developing software and the audio visual sides of things in a way I like to think with a kind of R&D team if you like so yeah that's kind of how it divvies up I guess it feels outwardly like Ninja Tune and Cold Cut are two sort of separate entities in a way that isn't always the case with with artists who run labels often an artist who runs their own label they're, they're totally synonymous with that um, but it does feel like you you give it a bit of space definitely i i think it's quite important to have that space maybe when you know we first kicked off and for some of the early period it was less like that but now it's definitely a separation which i think is healthy for both parties involved i might say it's a bit really like having a child you know initially the parents are sort of really involved and provide a lot of direction and support but later on the child develops its own identity grows up in its own way and then the parents have to sometimes make an effort to step back and let things develop naturally rather than always trying to want to control things and insist that the child's in your own image which wouldn't really work so ninja tunes definitely taken on its own quite strong identity distinct from Kolka. and actually occasionally you know, that causes some friction between us and it can be a bit of a tussle to sort of get the family to get along. But it's it's good that Ninja is a strong and independent thing. Do you guys have a uh, an inclination to ever to, to micromanage things happening at the label or was it difficult to, to let go full control? Certainly times come up where we think that the label should do a certain thing and we've got an idea that, you know, we feel should be implemented, perhaps an artist that we think is great that should be signed. But actually we know when to sort of put that forward and then when to let it go and it has to be that way and likewise ninja tune are the company that puts out our records and so good a and r and good support from that side is very important as well but sometimes there might be a difference of opinion there we might think we've got a fantastic track ninja don't feel it's actually right or up to the standard or right for cold cut so it, sometimes it can be quite a dynamic tussle to work these things out and what kind of processes are in place and what kind of hierarchy, I guess, is in place to um, discuss these kind of uh, creative decisions or creative directions and come out with a situation where everyone's happy? Honestly, I think like most families, we're just making it up as we go along. <laughs> we do have meetings, though, which is good. <laughs> it's an obvious thing, but there was a period of time when we weren't communicating that well between the three of us. We realised that that was the case and made a decision to have regular meetings and the, the idea is we go out for lunch on Friday and have a nice piece of fish and talk things over. It doesn't happen every Friday, but it happens a lot more often than it used to. And since we've done that, communication's been 
a lot better. So I guess that would be one of many growing pains that the label was experienced in terms of coming from a place where it's two or three people running it to it's a it's now a sort of major independent with with forty plus employees. What are, what are the some are some of the other sort of difficulties you faced in in terms of um, of growth? Well, initially John and I did all the accounting ourselves yes. manually, and when our accountant checked it after a couple of years, he was amazed that it was correct to the penny. But it, I don't think we could do that now. Yeah. Early on, we used a rather marvelous program called FileMaker Pro, and I think that was when John, that was kind of his introduction to computer programming, because in a way, it's like programming. You build your own thing with FileMaker. Yeah. And we built the accounting system for Ninja to had all our promo contacts in, all our sales, all the releases, and we kind of took it really far. And it, stayed in effect until only a few years ago didn't it Pete? we still i still use that original promo file still got all those djs in and uh it, i put my new contacts in it so i use that as my my rolodex on my computer That's and uh, we still use we still use filemaker for all sorts of things in uh, in the in the royalty accounting it's a very cold cut sort of program actually because it's a program with which you can build other programs you can really make things and customize them to your needs but honestly sometimes when i look through the office and i glance over people's shoulders and i see the amount of information and the complex structures that have come up it's pretty mind-boggling as to what it's grown into we couldn't have really envisaged that and i also wanted to ask you about you've got a publishing company just isn't music can you tell me about the history of that and, and why you decided to to start that I can tell you where the name came from, which was a review by Blues and Soul magazine. I think I can be rude about them because they're not around anymore. Right? <laughs> not, not much. Um, and they reviewed Cutting Herbie and 2-3 Break by the B-Boys, which was this pretty out there electro record of just scratching and drum machine. And they reviewed it and said, sorry, but this just isn't music. And we, we thought this was you know, a really great sort of reactionary comment that really needed a good kicking so we adopted that as the name of the publishing company and tell me in lay terms what what does the publishing company actually do what does it contribute to the to the, the whole operation it's a very important part of the whole operation now and i think matt and i realized that when we first kicked off which is why you know we paid attention to it because having been through the independence once with an signed to an independent label then through a major we saw how important that side of things was so pete probably explained the workings today i'm sure it's changed over 15 years well the, pr the principles are this the same obviously it's about looking after that your artist music and making sure they're properly registered and pitching your artist music for adverts and television and, and all those sorts of things and it is the ideal scenario to have a record company and a publishing company so that both companies can contribute to, to that process so we can get as much of our music on, on TV and film as, as we can and video games and all those sorts of things. And I think it's worth spelling out actually what publishing means with relation to records. You know, when you get, well, of course, there aren't so many records now, but generally in a recording of any type, there's two lots of rights. There's the rights in that actual recording, but there's also the rights in the writing of the song that makes it up. So with People Hold On, for instance, we own the recording and we also wrote the song in combination with Lisa and other co-writers. But say we did a cold cut version of Hey Jude, the Beatles own the publishing and we would own the recording. So for any exploitation, any money that comes in from sales of that, it would have to be split through those two channels. So by having our own publishing company, we get to administer that part of the pie ourselves, which is more efficient. And you say this this company um, has been running for fifteen years. Was that 
Uh, no, it's uh, it's been running for about 27, 28 years, I think, the publishing company. Because Matt and John, when they started, you started, well, you perhaps you should say. When we started ahead of our time, that was our first label. We also set up Just Isn't Music as a publishing company and also Speng Products, That's which right. was going to be our, <laughs> Speng Products was going to be our sort of merchandising side. That one hasn't lasted, but Just Isn't Music is still going. In terms of starting a publishing company, you know, that long ago, that seems like an incredibly prescient move in terms of how important, like, say, licensing a track to a, to a video game or a TV show or whatever is now to, to independent labels. How, how did you make that call at the time? I think we had done some music for a, a, a library and realised what would happen. So, you know, I think our share of the library music was quite diluted by the number of writers that were involved and the way that the deal was cut. But at the end of the day, one track on that CD was played on lots of radio stations, lots of TV must have been used and it earned a significant amount of money for Matt and I and when we realised that even after that dilution of all of those people who were involved in it, it was still a significant amount of money you know, we knew that that was a very sensible thing to do. Often you know, publishing rights or the rights <coughs> in a song have a longer useful lifetime than the actual recording you might do a recording, it might be a hit but then 20 years later, someone might still cover the song that you wrote and thus you need to have retain your rights in that and administer them. I think also generally with starting an independent label and an independent publishing company, we realised in a way what was going to happen, what's happened now, that the, the market would kind of explode but it would also fragment and it would become more difficult. And so if there was going to be only a kind of small pie available, it'd be better if as an artist you controlled 100% of that pie. And in a way, the situation now is, you know, many artists might ask, why do they actually need a label? It's the same thing, really. Just having an operation that can administer your work, which you own and have responsibility for, is just more efficient. And I guess, well, the, the music industry has, has changed a hell of a lot since, well, since Just As Music started and since Ninja Tunes started. Um, I mean, it's, it's never been easier to, to make or distribute music. In terms of the way the, the sort of ecosystem is now, do you think it's is better, better or worse than uh, than when you started? You can't really make that comparison. I don't think it's just different. Every week is different, and I think it gets exponentially more different. It's like saying <laughs> it's, it's like saying is life better now than it was twenty or fifty years ago? There's some things are better and some things are worse. I think the means of production has been democratized. The means of distribution has been democratized. So anyone can make stuff on their laptop and, and you can get it up on for sale in you know half an hour it's an amazing situation compared to a few years ago where those were kind of bottlenecks and monopolies really which were controlled by a relatively small number of people and you had to kind of play their game if you wanted to to play the game and it was the punk movement and the DIY ethic that started to break that open then with electronic technology and the internet it ripped it open further however the bottlenecks now moved to really visibility. And there's this phrase, the tyranny of choice, which means that there's so much music available that people can't be bothered. They just don't have the time to sift through it. So they tend to go to the stuff that's already popular. And that's a real problem at the moment. Music's much more conservative, I think, now 
even there's more music. Well, the there's same. a lot of conservatism in music. I mean, l- luckily, there's a lot of experimentation too, and there's more and more experimental and more and more excellent music. But it, I think the more experimental music finds it finds it harder and harder to. To, to have a voice as a label that's been really pushing experimental sounds since since day one how how have you gone about um in recent times getting the music out there well you have to work hard at it and keep watching what's happening you have to make sure you you're talking to ra and talking to everybody you need to see who what the new channels are what the new youtube channels are if you need to be on a new app, you know, on a new social media, all, all those things. So you have to keep moving and you've got to keep working. In a way, lots of things are easier. It's easier to do all these things, but actually there are more of them. So you have to do more things all the time. Ninja Tune and before that, ahead of our time, were both set up partly in response to your experiences with, with major labels can you tell me a bit about those experiences and 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 what was sort of sat what sort of um, went sour for you guys in that respect? Well, ahead of our time was our first label, and that was just John and me putting a record out. And you know, we'd been through the punk time. We'd seen people like Buzzcocks with Spiral Scratch. That was a great record. Daniel Miller, Warm Leatherette was another key independent electronic label. He went on to be Mute Records, of course. So we were inspired by those people to do it ourselves, and then. When we did start making our own records, we hooked up with another small label who thought it was amazing that we were selling 3,000 copies of a 12-inch out of the back of John's car. And so they signed us, and then what happened was they got bought by... Now, I have to say, Big Life, we did have some great success working with them, with Jazz Summers and Tim Parry, records like People Hold On with Lisa Stansfield and Doctor in the House with Yaz and The Only Way Is Up as well. But... When they got bought by a, a major label, we suddenly found ourselves sort of in the belly of the beast and in the, the gears of a sausage machine, which really felt pretty uncomfortable. And so that culminated in a, a, a situation where we really couldn't put out the music that we wanted. And there was a lot of pressure to make another generic hit under the name Kolka, and that just wasn't what we wanted to do. So we were in Japan and we came up with the idea of Ninja Tune, as John called it, our Technicolored escape pod to get out of the kind of uh, monolithic corporate swamp that we were in and live to fight again. That was Ninja Tune. These days, Ninja Tune operates as a clued up large independent label. And you you see things like you sign artists to three album deals and things like that. Can you tell me about how those early uh, incidents and and run-ins with major labels have informed how you approach the, the business side of things? Interesting question, a big, big question really, because for John and I, we've now been on both sides. It was easy to be whinging artists and moan at the label, <laughs> but now we're the label, we sometimes have to see that perspective as well. Yeah, I mean, I, the key thing for us is to try and be equitable, be fair, be fair to us and be fair to artists and develop relationships with them which work for artists and and work for us. And for the most part, that's worked out and artists will stay with us so I, I think the main in answer to your question the main thing we've done is we we do 50 50 net profit splits with our artists that was matt and john's idea and uh, it's definitely sets you apart from uh, a major label and and other labels in that we're just if we make money 
we keep half of it and the the artist keeps half of it so uh it, which isn't the case with a with a major label so i think that's the main that's that's one of the core differences between us and i think also possibly by thought possibly by default artists have stayed with us and thus they've had time to mature and develop which is something that major record labels used to do and seem to have stopped so i think that's another important part of ninja well i guess uh you've built a label where where there's a lot of artists who are thought of as a ninja tune artist i guess bonobo mr scruff Eamon tobin there's quite a few and you don't see that very often these days do you think that's just because you've you've been around for so long or is it about really actively working to maintain these relationships I think it's actively working to maintain them. Pete certainly is on the case doing that. Well, the the whole company knows the importance of artists and we're always very keen to, to do what an artist wants to do. And I, I mean, I think most small labels, certainly, that's their, that's their raison d'etre. That's their modus operandi, if you like. That's that's what they want to do. They want to keep the artists happy and and do as well as they can promoting the artists. And... If, if you can keep doing that and keep keep uh, focus on an artist and keep talking to them, then there's no reason really why they should leave, except if they've got ambitions of a different sort. The artist perspective was useful to us in setting up our business arrangements with our artist. As Pete said, it's a 50-50 deal. John and I made a 50-50 deal between each other at the beginning of Cold Cut, and I think that's why we've managed to keep working together for nearly 30 years now. And it is a good feeling that both parties are equally motivated. That's, it is in contrast to the sort of major label deal where you really get a much smaller percentage of sales. And yes, you may get the advantages of a big company pushing you, but it can also lead to problems. I don't know if we're going to talk about Spotify later, but um, maybe I could drop that in now that Tom York spoke out saying that Spotify was the last fart of a dying corpse, meaning the music business. Well, we're still in the music business and we're still trying to keep it going. And I think he was probably speaking from the, the point of an artist who's on a major label. Now, if you're on a major label, you don't get much money from the sale of your music on Spotify. You just get fractions. And the major labels use what's called black box accounting. They don't have to account in detail to you where the money comes in and you just get whatever they give you. Whereas whatever money comes in from Spotify with Ninja Tune, our artists will get 50%. And so those artists who are selling well on the label do well on Spotify. They do pretty nicely, thank you. And it's become one of our major sources of income. So the fact that it's completely killing the music business is absolutely untrue from our point of view. In fact, they are the good guys. What's the killing the music business or changing the music business is streaming music and that's not Spotify, that's YouTube, that's all sorts of things, isn't it? And Spotify, as you say, are, are the... In streaming, Spotify are the good guys. I wouldn't say that streaming, you know, streaming is changing things. The music business had already been given a pretty serious kicking in by things like illegal downloading and copying of CDs. And, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't say that people should be prosecuted for that. I think that made it into a kind of good guys, bad guys thing, which was actually quite damaging. But let's say that the internet gave music business some serious problems and streaming is sort of the most workable solution to that. Yeah, I mean, the internet gave people access to music and that's really what record companies should be about, is giving people access to music. So actually, streaming's 
the best thing for music and the best thing for, for record companies and the best thing for artists because it means that everyone can listen to your music. It's just the crucial thing from our point of view, from a record company's point of view and artist's point of view is having sensible ways of, of, of getting paid for, so, for music, obviously. So, and, and that's starting to happen. So to go back to our experience with being signed to another label that wasn't our own got pretty messy. And actually, we felt that we ended up being owed a lot of money and there was no way for really us to get that back because it just wasn't transparent. So when we set up Ninja Tune, it was A, to make sure that we got paid. And then when this other artist started to join the label, it was naturally natural for us to extend that to them and try and give people a, a really fair and honest deal that was transparent. So I think that's a big reason why some of our artists have stayed with us. They see that that's the case and they do appreciate it because that's not universally the case in the music business. And to delve into the streaming a bit more, I, I, you guys have always been at the sort of vanguard of music and technology. Would you hazard to guess in term, um, terms of what the future holds for, for streaming and how, how, you know, if we'll ever reach a point that's kind of balanced between uh, the needs of the listener and the, the needs of artists and record labels? I hope that Spotify gets massive because the more subscribers that they get, the more money that the artists get. The model is a really good one. Whereas other large companies who remain nameless at this point seem to be dedicated to driving down the value of music to absolutely to as near zero as they can get to. And we can't work like that. We can't function like that. And so the, there is a model that can work and the sort of now, I think there should be such a thing as fair trade music. I think most people m love music and appreciate that there's value there. And if the good mechanisms there, they're prepared to shell out for that, that value to have that music. Do you think that equivalent almost exists now in, in terms of the, the medium and, and maybe with vinyl where people will say, I'll go out of my way to, to pay a bit extra for a record because that symbolizes actually sort of investing something, investing some, some money into, a, into music? Absolutely, yeah. If you really, really love a piece of music, you, you want to own it, I think. And that's the reason why vinyls, the resurgence of, of vinyls has occurred. That's the reason why vinyl has grown. A friend of mine, Andy from Lamb, he's been selling a lot of vinyl on tour that they got made up for the tour. And he says people buy it and he goes and signs it and they put it on their wall mm -hmm. because it's really, it's showing I care about this enough to pay for it and I want to show that I value this. So that's something you can do with a physical artifact that you can't do with virtual artifacts. And I, I guess another um, innovation that you guys have have undertaken in recent years is a kind of is building a stable of of other record labels that you kind of distribute or oversee. Um, Brainfeeder was one of the first that I noticed, and and there's also WorkDisc as well. Can you tell me a bit about these partnerships? What what does NinjaTune get out of this, and what do the other labels get out of it? We started working with Brainfeeder because we we had a relationship with Flying Lotus. We did his first gig in the UK. We hosted his first gig in the UK and uh, we ended up doing a publishing deal with him. Obviously signed to Warp. He he had Brainfeeder, already started Brainfeeder. It was mainly mixtapes and, and that sort of thing. It was clear there was a load of energy and a lot of quality there. And um, he was looking to start a proper record label and and wanted someone to help him do that and uh, so we ended up talking to him about that and ended up 
helping him him do that. I mean, I, I think the reason why is we, we've got a infrastructure, if you like. We've got people running a label and that's what he wanted. And we felt it was a good synergy for us to be distributing his records, marketing his records, helping them make videos and, and, and other things like that. So it just seemed like a, an artistic synergy, if you like, an aesthetic synergy. So um, since then, lots of people have asked if we would we would run a record label for them. But actually, you can't do that many other ways. You just become a distributor with thousands of labels. So we've limited it really to brain feeder and work. Do you feel you've reached the ceiling in terms of how many labels you'd want to work with in that in that way? At the moment, we have. Um, in the future, maybe we we take on some more. But there's only so much time and and energy and really you want to focus on it and of course ninja tune is our core focus and big data and the, and the other labels are actually within within our family other labels that are, are part of ninja tune if you like so there's some labels which are actually sub labels of ninja tune and there's some labels that we have a closer association with technicolor is photo machine they've set up this, this deal that, yeah technicolor is a ninja tune label and we've Photo machines been been A and Ring it and working with Ninja Tune A and R to to build that label, and yeah, it's very exciting. We've got a hieroglyphic being album coming. We've got a Jay Daniel album coming. We've got a Levantis album coming, and uh, yeah, just put out some great twelve twelves from you and and Florian Kupfer and and other people. So yeah, that's been a exciting development it's been a a place for ninja tune to do music that we're into but feels feels too um techno or feels too they're sort of one-off projects if you like rather than us developing an artist so it's kind and also uh, photo machines input obviously is is key in that i just want to mention about brain feeder we've had quite a close connection with la generally because even before that kicked off we were signing Dwight Tribble and some people who then fed into the kind of wonky LA beat scene. And John's been over there quite a bit working on our album. Yes. <laughs> I Are we mentioning the albums? <laughs> There's a new Colca album, which is uh, is coming along nicely. But, you know, we've been... Thundercat, for instance, is yeah. a key player from that scene. And you've been in the studio with him. It, it is amazing in LA. There is an energy there. And, you know, the... The way that it's, it is a family, it reminds me of the of, of, of Ninja in a way and <clears throat> the way it runs with the clubs and everybody kind of helping out the sound systems. And it's just incredible to see how, for example, Low End Theory has gone from playing a small place on a strip to I think it's this weekend doing a massive festival with all sorts of stuff going on. So that's fantastic. It's an exciting scene and it's great to see that. Can you tell me a bit about Ninja Tune's roots in LA? Because th there's a there's a Ninja Tune office in in Los Angeles. Am I am I right in saying that? That's right. The, a guy called Dom Smith, who used to work at Ninja, he's now manages Flying Lotus and manages Cinematic Orchestra. He uh, he used to be part of the Ninja Tune team, and he thought it would be a good idea to go to LA, and we thought it would be a good idea to go there and 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 do find some artists, and we and we signed. Daedalus and we signed Amon Contact and Dwight Tribble as as uh, as Matt said so so yeah it was an exciting period that when 
and Lotus came out of that scene and Brainfeeder came out of that scene. And I think that's partly why we've ended up working with Brainfeeder because we were aligned with that scene early on. You mentioned Big Data before um, a label that you've had a long-running relationship with. Can you tell me how that began and how it's evolved down the years? So I used to do the press at Ninja. I, mean, I used to do nearly everything. And so I used to send records out, 12 inches and albums out to journalists for them to review the record. And one of those journalists was Will Ashen, who used to work at Trace and Music Magazine and some other mag- magazines. Anyway, so he he's a hip-hop journalist, hip-hop reviewer. He used to review all sorts of records, big hip-hop artists and small ones. But anyway, he came to Ninja and he asked us if we'd be interested in starting a UK hip-hop label or a, a not a UK hip-hop label, a label that would put out experimental hip-hop, a label that put out hip-hop that didn't have a home elsewhere. And actually at the time we felt that Ninja Tune was too oriented towards kind of only instrumental music. So it seemed the perfect solution. Matt and John were really into the idea. So we ended up doing that and uh, Will signed Roots Maneuver and other people. We did two 12 inches with Luke Vibert producing them, uh, rappers, on the first the first two releases, Alpha Prime and the Gemini Twins. So yes, that was that was an exciting move. So Will stayed. That, that Big Dad is part of Ninja Tune, so it's the same company. It's a different imprint, and we had a deal with Will, where he would, you know, he got he gets a share of it, and uh, he'd sign people, and and it's been a fantastic, been a fantastic label. We put out Diplo's first record. We put out Spank Rock's first record. We put out the Speech to Bell record, and the obviously Young Files and Kate Tempest recently and Big Dad has won two Mercury Prizes and been some really exciting records. The, the young, young Fathers are amazing. We've got a Darkie Freaker EP coming up which is exciting and there's a couple other people we're hoping to new people coming joining the label soon. Let's not forget the Mighty Roots Maneuver who for my mind is sort of absolutely one of the top poets in the UK and you know we've continued to have that relationship and he's coming with a new record this year and yeah the new record's amazing actually it's a new it's a new sound from him it's a new um he, yes he's, he's found working with different producers he's got a new sound so it's interesting it's Oop. still it's still roots maneuver but <laughs> does will continue to oversee that um actually that- will will decided to retire about a year and a half ago which was uh it's a bit it's a bit sad actually because it was it was great working with will but i think he he found that it was such a the music business had changed so much and he felt it was hard to make it work or something i'd say doing you doing uk hip-hop's been a, a hard gig i'd say Big Daddy isn't just a UK hip-hop label, but we're kind of associated with that in the UK. And it's been a hard gig because the Americans do dominate it, but yet we feel there's something really good there and we've been pushing that through, but it's been quite tough sometimes. And, yeah, I mean, Big Dada's on a roll as well. We put out Wiley's last album, obviously, and we put a lot of Wiley records, which has been amazing. I mean, he's, I think, one of the most exciting artists that has been on Big Dada. 
And of course, Kate Tempest and Young Fathers and Roots Maneuver is still going strong. So that's Will's legacy. The, our problem is how do you continue after Will Ashen? And uh, we're still struggling with that. But we're, we're, there are a few things going to happen that, that will... So are a few people Rest. pitching in with the with the A and R of of Big Data now, or exactly yes. Yeah. So the the Ninja Tune team pitch in, and Matt and John will pitch in, and ideas for that. So I'm sure there'll be some good things coming. You know, hip hop is the strongest kind of route that we all have in common. All the artists on Ninja Tune, I think this is probably still true. It certainly was true a few years ago. I think it probably still is. If you asked all the artists about their strongest musical influences, hip hop will always be in there and certainly true for, for John and me as well. Also caught Run the Jewels at Glastonbury this year, and it's interesting, LP, who's been around for quite a long time, and we put out their first Run the Jewels album. They've, they've finally blown up big, and it was immense, that gig, I can tell you. They really have blown up, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, that, that's amazing, yeah. Still don't know how they quite managed to get the sun to come out just as they came on stage. That was pretty decent. <laughs> <laughs> this year marks the 25th anniversary of Ninja Tune. For the 20th anniversary, which just seems like yesterday, actually, uh, you guys pushed the boat out with a book, an exhibition, a compilation, and a world tour. What's the plan for this milestone? We're going to be a bit more sedate with with the 25th. I think you yes. will feel like we did so much for our 20th. We're made still such recovering a fuss. from the hangover. We made such a, <laughs> such a fuss. It almost seemed, uh, yeah, seemed like we should take it easy. So we're going to have some great gigs. We just announced those today i guess that, that won't be today when the podcast comes out but we've we've announced some gigs so yeah we got the a big gig in um uh, ade in amsterdam as part of ade with bonobo george fitzgerald machine drum leon vinyl and Romare, which is a monstrous stacked lineup i think it's one of yeah it's definitely one to be proud of and then we've announced three gigs in london very different gigs you know, meant to kind of reflect the diversity of the label, although we've got lots of non-Ninja artists playing. At St. John's in Hackney, we're putting on King Midas and Finesse. We've just put out an album from them, and along with Dean Blunt and um, Shackleton. And then at the ICA, we're going to have Actress Live, which will be interesting, a new live set from Actress, together with uh, Low Tech and Technicolor's Florian Kupfer, and um, then at Corsica Studios, we've got a couple of exciting Ninja Tune headliners, which I'm not going to say, plus uh, Honey, H-N-N-Y, and um, Flacco, and uh, Glenn Astro, and Josie Rebel from Rinse is going to be there as well. So, yeah, it's a good spread of... It's exciting. I think they're possibly... No, it's not more exciting than 20th. Maybe it is more exciting than 20th. It's more diverse, I think. It's a more interesting lineup, perhaps. There have been a couple of little things I've, I've noticed in recent times that I'm, I'm sure would have pleased uh, older, more seasoned followers of, of Ninja Tune. Uh, the classic sleeves on the, the past couple of Faulty DL singles, for example, and the, the relaunch of uh, Solid Steel Radio. Both seem to go down really well, but are you cautious about too much nostalgia? There's a fine balance, you know, between the nostalgia and pushing forward on the cutting edge. You know, there are lots of people that still love the old kind of 90s blunted Ninja Tune vibe and that sound. And 
we still love it as well, but it's not really where we're at at the moment. But still, you know, those fans, they love us and we love them and it, there's still something there. But you do have to move forward. Sorry, I was going to say, Romare is uh, obviously completely new and fresh and original, but you can see echoes of, of that 90s yeah. Ninja Tune sound yeah, there, which it, that's, I mean, that's, it's great for us to see that that coming around again in an exciting form. Is that something you, you look for when you're adding artists to the label um, in terms of, I guess a lot of artists who are sort of coming through now would have grown up listening to Ninja Tune records. So do you, do you kind of look for that influence inherent in their own productions when you're, when you're trying to add someone to the label? I don't think we, we don't look for that influence. We're not asking for that influence, but if there is an, if you see a, a similarity or an influence there, then if it's interesting, then that could be part of why they'd make sense on Ninja Tune, yeah, for sure. I think the Ninja sort of diaspora was quite wide, actually. I often go to trance events, not because I like the music, because I like the scene. And people often there say, you know, Matt, Ninja Tune was the label that got me into making music, and they may have gone off on some completely different musical direction. So the seeds have fallen quite widely and they spring up in all sorts of weird places. Someone who's uh, been running a label for quite a while told me privately that the idea of um, putting out a book about their label kind of scared them because they, they feared that it would mean it would freeze everything in time and turn their label into a kind of museum. Is that something that you I worry hate, about at all? Or? Sorry, I, I hated putting out that book. It's the sort of embarrassing, excruciating thing. I mean... People say they re when I read it, I think really does something I, like something I, I, like the book couldn't actually encapsulate the real spirit of the label, which is even then was a kind of strange and really multi-dimensional thing. And now it's yeah, a book is fixed in time, but we're not; we're still changing. So you know, the book was then, but this is now. And you mentioned that you, you don't specifically um, listen for echoes of a an Ninja Tune influence when you're when you're adding artists to the label. Can you tell me a bit about the process you do go through when you're finding new artists, new talent? Well, we're always listening to music, obviously, and there's so much new music and, and so many ways to listen to music, find music. There are lots of people at Ninja Tune who listen to music and pitch in ideas. There's a core team of people, sort of half a dozen people, who will discuss the... Uh, discuss the artists that we we're thinking of signing and see what's what's uh, best but most people at ninja will pitch in an idea at some time or other so uh, as to how we choose what artists would come on the label I, I think that's just what seems exciting what seems what artists we'd like to release and and uh, which label that they're suited to so some people will be thinking about this is about Ninja Tune releases only, but then they might say, oh, actually, this perhaps this would be better on Big Data. Then we'd have a conversation about Big Data. I guess uh, music is just one side of, of uh, the Ninja Tune operation. Another interesting part is the the design, in terms of the not only the record sleeves, but you know, audio visual tours and and John and Matt, you've obviously been massively um, influential in that regard can you tell me how have you gone about cultivating the visual side of ninja tune and cold cut so i think 
we jointly came up with the ahead of our time logo. That was ahead of John's, wasn't it? Yeah. And I put the lettering on it. Just so. drew it on a piece of paper and that was okay. Tick. Matt filled it in with the lettering. I did train as an artist, went to art school, trained in three-dimensional design. And I think, you know, something that brought Matt and I together was definitely our love of record company artwork and labels and that whole thing. So we were very aware of having an important identity. You know, if you, you say Def Jam, it comes into my head that colour and, and the label, you, you know, so understanding that I think early on was quite important for both of us and so we thought it was very necessary to have a strong visual context and you know we were again fortunate that we stumbled across Strictly Kev. Tell me about that. Well I'd, I'd bracket that actually I was at uni with a bunch of guys and we just used to get high and listen to music all the time and On You Sound was in effect and those 10 inches particularly that strong black and white really good graphic design was very influential and I think Ninja could trace a line back to that. But one of the chaps I was living with was Mark Porter and he did all the initial graphic design for Ninja Tune, completely self-taught, used to do our party invites and then he sort of set the look and he went on to redesign The Guardian and be creative director at The Guardian and he's now one of the sort of top independent graphic designers, but completely from a self-taught sort of amateur background. So it was really great to have him on board. And then Mixmaster Morris introduced us to Strictly Kev, who was an art student from Camberwell. He had a, a posse of friends. They put on these excellent ambient parties called Telepathic Fish Squat Parties in Brixton. And Morris connected me with them, and Kev came on board, and he took the ninja design on from Jim, my mate's nickname, so he, he took the design on and he then, the second sort of evolution of the design of the label came from Kev. The first Ninja logo man was Michael Bartalos, is that right? Well, the first one is actually, he was on, I was pleased to see resurfacing on a Zenbreaks t-shirt was a little stick man, which I did. That was Matt, yeah. But, but it was Mark Porter who found Michael Bartalos for us and he did the Stop This Crazy Thing cover for Cold Cut and then he also did the first nin the proper first ninja who looked a bit like a ninja who had the wicked spiral in the middle so that was Michael Bartalos You mentioned Adrian Sherwood's uh, On You Sound and Def Jam as well what other outlets were um, inspiring to you in terms of the, the visual aesthetic? Stiff Records not only the visual aesthetic, but the whole kind of cutting thing with Porky's Prime cuts and the rough-assed way they went about stuff, you know. Throbbing Gristle. Oh, yeah, Throbbing Gristle. You know, I went crazy for them in the late 70s and actually with a friend of mine put on a gig at Goldsmiths College and have Genesis Peorage come and lecture the the class about uh, art and, and revolution so fantastic band you know political extreme you know uncomfortable awkward everything great artwork despicable artwork depends what side of the fence you were on great sense of humor yeah. that 20 jazz funk greats is a classic album and you know a great snide remark as well also, Warp and Mo Wax have yeah. had great design, and uh, the Designers Republic designed a lot of the the Warp covers, and the, they're definitely a 
a, a great an influence to to Kev. Yeah, they're an iconic. I mean, bunch. The, the idea of yeah, that idea of sort of integrated design was was definitely influential to us. Got to say, Neville Brody, the face as well in the 80s that was a big influence certainly on Mark Porter the, the kind of big super heavy type thing another big non-musical factor with Ninja Tuners being embracing technology what's exciting you most in that that realm these days you've, you've had an app that's been going for a couple of years now well we're, we're launching Ninja Jam for Android so that's been quite a lot of work and hopefully there's a big audience of people out there that will like it because there's not much good music software for Android and I'm pretty excited by that. It's actually uh, recycling some ideas which are 15 years old, the original Colcut software from the 90s, which we used to use for performances, kind of precursor to Ableton. So we're developing that and making it more funky and powerful as we go. But we've also got quite a lot of other interesting software ideas in development at the moment, including a game, uh, algorithmic music plugin, and a kind of visual synthesizer. So the Colcut Lab is quite active. And it's funny, in the 90s, we did the album Let Us Play, and it came with this free CD-ROM of various kind of multimedia toys. And recently, I've, a few people at various events I've been have come up and said, you know, that was a wicked release, and I really enjoyed it, and it got, perhaps got me started into doing multimedia or VJing. So sometimes you don't know what effect your work is having especially in the old days, it was very difficult to know who your audience was and how far the waves were traveling. But it is satisfying to later find out that, you know, it might not be millions of people that enjoyed it, but some cool people really got into it and it had an, an influence. And I think we've still got some really good, sharp new ideas to expand on just the music. You know, I think it's been, a, you know, music has expanded, convergence has happened and it's good to be able to play freely in the, the areas around music and art and hook them up and make some new mashups that haven't been done yet. So we're still on that. And how did you go about developing the app? How much of that were you involved with yourself? Did you have um, developers come on board to, to work with you on that? So we partnered with a London collective called SEPA and they actually did the hard work of coding the app and also the graphic design. But the main concept of the app was from me. And as I say, it was recycling a bit of software called DJAM, which we developed in the 90s. It was really quite similar, like a four-track loop mixer with some special algorithms that chop clips up and put them back together so you get some interesting random variation. That's in Ninja Jam. It's called the Cold Cutter. And the ideas are really perhaps not that novel, but I think we've managed to sort of make them into a package that hasn't been done before. Ableton's been a key piece of software in the last sort of 10 or 15 years and um, that's what John and I use. So taking some of the advantages of that and putting it into a really easy to use package. Also with really good content so that kind of whatever you do you're starting with something good so it's easy to get good results out of. We've touched on the, the music industry and how it stands in 2015 and I guess one thing that's almost but not quite fallen by the wayside is, is the mix CD. Considering 70 Minutes of Madness is regarded as one of the high points in that field. I was wondering how you felt about the demise of the mix CD. It's probably a good thing, really. 
means that people stop asking us when we got to make another 70 minutes of madness. So that's quite healthy from that point of view. <laughs> um, it, it, it's like anything, it'll, it comes and goes and somebody's going to come up with some kind of mixing thing and, you know, it, it will be out there. I suppose you've got SoundCloud, MixCloud, la 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 cloud. So why have it on a CD now, really? So you're not really sentimental about it? I think not many people are that sentimental about the demise of the CD compared to, say, vinyl as a format. I'm certainly not. I've pretty much binned all of mine and digitised them now. But, you know, the mix, I'm still well into mixing. Yeah. And we do mixes and, they, you know, put them on Mixcloud. And there's also Solid Steel, the radio show, which has always been about mixing. And, you know, what is mixing? It's taking some things and mixing them together. And hopefully by that process, you generate something new, a bit like having sex and getting some offspring from it, something actually new. And sometimes you don't know what it will be. Like cooking, you mix two things together, the resulting flavour you couldn't perhaps have predicted. So mixing hasn't gone away. That attitude's still there. Native Instruments are bringing out their stems format now, which is an interesting development, and pretty much on the parallel universe to Ninja Jam, which also gives you access to the separated DNA of a track, so you can really get in there and change it. The, the mashup really came out of mix culture as well and that had a big impact and I think quite usefully kind of opened up people's tastes that it was okay to perhaps play something a bit cheesy if you did something cool with it. I mean mixing's more alive than it ever has been isn't it? There are more mixes available every week every day than, than ever before so the format's just been changed they're not on CD they're on SoundCloud or, or somewhere. But it is hard to do something really radical and new and that, in a way, that was one of the reasons why we didn't do another Journeys by DJ. We didn't think we could top it, and there was no point in just turning the handle around and cranking out another one. But if you look on Mixcloud and look up Colcut Love Mix, that's something that we've done recently that is something it nods. Yeah. yeah. Can you tell me how you put that mix together? Yeah, it took, <laughs> it, took a, it took a lot of time. It's concentrated sort of micro editing, multi-threading of stuff trying out you know we started off with a a pool of about three or four hundred tracks and they, they were all carefully selected to kind of have the right resonance and we really the initial concept was about celebrating experimentation in music by doing a mix which was experimental and it was really just good old-fashioned trying a lot of things out and then trying to divine which are the ones which have that special quality x we d there's a mind map on the uh, Mixcloud site you can have a look at which gives some insight into where we're at with it and there's a new cold cut album on the way what's it sounding like ah sounding good <laughs> it's getting there you know it's when it sounds properly like a cold cut album then we'll know it's ready it's kind of sounding like a cold cut album but it still needs some work can you shine a bit of light on the process of making a cold cut album in 2015 and how that differs from your, your previous records. I could hold candle up probably would be about enough light that we'd want to shine on it. It's a weird process making music and especially as we've been doing it for a long time and so it comes and goes and things you think you might do you think are amazing aren't amazing the next day or the next week or the next month and so you just have to find a route and We've always taken our time about it. 
and we still are. It is a mysterious process. Yeah. I mean, without getting too kind of mystical about creativity, etc., I couldn't define it. I couldn't really tell you where the ideas come from. One aspect of creativity is choice. So as a producer, you're constantly asking yourself, is this better than it was a minute ago before I change that hi-hat or put that vocal in or turn the bass up? And the ability to discern that and have confidence in one's ability to do that is quite a delicate thing. And mine personally goes in and out of focus a lot. And some days I feel like I'm, I'm really on it. And then some days I feel it just isn't there. Also, one goes down sort of blind alleys and you think, this is fantastic, I've really mm -hmm. cracked it. And you play it a couple of days later or you play it to the others and realise that you haven't cracked it and no. you're going to still have to, to try harder. We've been down some of the best blind alleys in the world, I can tell you that for sure. And in terms of uh, general inspiration, I wanted to ask about William Burroughs. He's someone that's come up in previous interviews um, you guys have done down the years. Can you really draw any direct influence from his style? I guess there's been a lot of discussion about your cut-up style and his cut-up style. Is that something that you have paid attention to? You know, when John and I started off, I don't think we really knew much about that. I'd read Naked Lunch, and I thought it was a very funny and interesting book, but I didn't necessarily draw the line with that and what we were doing. We were just into hip-hop and scratching and fucking shit up and layering it up and making something that people could dance to. Yeah, I mean, we, we had a collage aesthetic which stemmed one from the fact that the computer allowed you to paste all that stuff together and two because we came from the punk thing you know I'd been at art college I'd learned about collaging shit together Matt's got a fantastic heritage art heritage with his dad and family so was very aware of that so I think it's even though we didn't realize at the time it's kind of in your subconscious which is why you gravitate towards those things that feature I th that. I think John was probably more aware of the kind of the cut-up aesthetic than I was. I was on a bit of a moody one with my old man at the time who was into high culture as an artist, and so I, I was kind of rejecting that. I didn't really want to go near any art theory. We would say I was into, into hip-hop and Grandmaster Flash and just doing stuff that sounded great. But later, when the whole sampling thing blew up, and then journalists would start asking us mm. about this and it's like well that's interesting perhaps as you get into something we were getting into it we were becoming i guess more expert at what we were doing and it's natural when you get into something to then go back and find out the roots of where it's come from and then that turned up burroughs and cage and reich and music concrete and those other references which now i you know i love to celebrate those and understand i mean I define a stupid bastard as someone who doesn't know who their parents are culturally or genetically and doesn't care to know. I, I don't want to be a stupid bastard. I want to know where, I'm, where I come from and those guys, you know, we're standing on their shoulders totally. Now, last year we got the chance to do a piece for a William Burroughs exhibition called Animals in the Wall. So we did two things. One was a, a Ninja Jam pack using Burroughs' spoken word. And there's some great lectures that he did when he was teaching that had some great statements from him on consciousness awareness why cut up can be used to enhance your own awareness so we kind of shoehorned them in over some beats that john had done and made that into a pack in ninja jam and you could interact with that so we were cutting up the cut up and in fact on let us play there was a wicked sample that 
you found yeah. about how random is random. Took a scissors and cut these at random. These cut up processes, etc., etc. And it's very poetic, Burroughs. So then we also did a 20-minute audiovisual cut-up using Burroughs' texts and also his artwork because he painted and made art as well. And that was called Vector. And Burroughs had these theories of language as a virus transforming consciousness. And in recombinant DNA technology, viruses are used as vectors to take a payload, some DNA that you want to get into a cell and take it in there and implant it, chop it in in the right place. That's a vector. So I think Burroughs himself was a vector bringing new ideas into culture. And that audiovisual project you were describing, that was at the London exhibition, wasn't it, of, of Burroughs? Yeah, that was shown at yeah. the Animals at the Wall exhibition. Yeah. As Cold Cut, you've performed pretty much every music festival and art gallery you can you can imagine. Have there been any gigs that you found truly terrifying? Steve Reich at the Barbican was perhaps the low point of our life career. Because, oh. you know, when we were on this uh, pirate station years ago, Network 21, and I realised it was a bit more arty than Kiss. And I really didn't know what to play. And John said, I know what to play and put on music for 18 musicians. I'd never heard it before. He then followed it up with a Lee Perry dub track. And I, it was just <laughs> a brilliant juxtaposition between these two completely different bits of music. Just by playing one after the other, it made a connection. That really stayed with me. But music for 18 musicians became my favourite piece of music, as it is for a lot of other people I've since found out. And then we got the chance to remix it. I just found out today that Reich didn't know about that Reich remix project. They didn't get permission from him oh, initially. So, um, sorry about that. So we remixed Music for 80 Musicians, which w was pretty good. And then we got a chance, I think, for his 75th birthday to do a live show at the Barbican doing that track. Sort of arguably, certainly one of the masterpiece masterpieces of late 20th century composition and we did this we were on tour yeah. and yet we had to put a whole new show together just for this we were and coming back from australia wasn't it yeah we were working on it in australia everyone else was going off surfing and we were stuck in the hotel like chopping stuff up and trying to make <laughs> an audiovisual piece to you know to make it into an audiovisual piece by synchronizing visuals with the music so we got something that we thought was damn good and the the run-through was superb it really worked well everything behaved itself. everything behaved itself and then at the actual gig with steve reich there the computer crashed and it kind of petered out and the synchronization didn't work and i didn't have the the balls to actually stop it and say sorry guys we with, fucked with it. steve reich there and my mum and dad in the audience and two thousand people didn't so we had to sort of busk it and then at the end it crashed everyone still thought it was wicked but i just wanted to no me and myself <laughs> It was an engineer he decided to unplug a plug from the computer and then plug it back in again, and it just threw the whole thing out and it just died. And yeah, we never we hadn't really taken that into consideration. And these days, of course, if we were doing that, we'd probably have a whole backup of um, CD or eight track or all the other things that performers use to guard against the very fact that computers are unstable. Yeah, I mean, if, I'd say one thing, which is we were doing something that was pretty edgy and I'm still glad that we did that rather yeah. than doing something which was just, as some people do, just playback. You know, you hit a tape and then you stand on stage miming and maybe moving a couple of faders. Fuck that. They've never been into that. And so there's a risk in element involved. In this case, the risk didn't quite work out. But 
live visuals with music we've been doing for a long time and I'm fairly satisfied I, I'm satisfied that that has now finally become well yeah. established if you go to most electronic music shows especially the big ones they're trying to outdo each other in fact in how massive the visuals can be and how well synchronized they can be and it even extends to rock bands as well a mate of mine's VJing for the who at the moment and so kind of that VJing battle was a long one but we in the end I think VJing's won and I'm really happy about that and Amon Tobin's ISAM show was a real good milestone certainly for Ninja as well we helped put that show together and financed it because we thought let's see if we can do a really big impact live AV electronic show we're now working I believe on on the next Amon show, right? Yeah, Amon's got some some new ideas, and yeah, they're very exciting. A, a whole another level of complexity and wonder. Can you tell me a bit about any other projects you're working on as Coldcut at the moment? Are there going to be some some live shows once the LP comes out? We we haven't really worked out whether there is or not going to be any live shows at the moment. I'm sure there will be, but the main thing at the moment is to finish the Coldcut album. We're also working on a kind of reggae-influenced project, which we're hoping to mix with Adrian Sherwood fairly soon. Got some interesting people on that. Cecile, Lee Perry, Junior Reed. Quite quite an interesting thing to do. I'm excited about that. And all of our software. Yeah, I'm still... Uh, the software side of things and the sort of multimedia and visual side of things is, is really still a big part of, of what we do. So that's all... Hopefully it will all coalesce and crystallise at just the right point. But I think till we've nailed the album, we can't really design a live show. So we're putting, the prioritising, finishing that. That's got to happen first. And then the other pieces should hopefully slot in. A few years back, uh, you said in regards to starting a record label that you started with £500, a John Ball printing outfit and a tune. Yeah. What advice would you offer to someone starting a, a record label in 2015? Don't bother with the John Bull printing press <laughs> and maybe get like a bit more cash, <laughs> but have a tune. That's all that really matters. Or some tunes and, and an idea, you know, what you want to do. We found a hole in the wall at that time. Yeah. You know? That was a party actually with Norman Jay and Judge Jules and uh, Jonathan that I went to and when the rare groove thing was just kicking off before we started cold cut. Yeah. But the, there's always a way in. Other, some doors close, other ones open. I might have said before, don't make a vinyl record, think of something else. But I looked it up on the net the other day. You can get 100 copies of a vinyl pressed all in, 560 quid. You can get 500 copies for, I think, 860 quid. So considering that 30 years ago, 500 copies cost 500 quid, that's pretty decent. So why not make yourself a limited vinyl artifact and perhaps do individual artwork for each sleeve, make it something special. I think the limited edition artifact is still something that has value. And there's always a workaround. There's always a way to slip through the establishment the way that people say it's got to be and do something new and, and shine and find a way through that. But there's no formula for that. No. I'd like to finish by asking all three of you to, to name one artist you'd wish you wish you'd had signed to Ninja Tune. <laughs> <laughs> Just one. That's a difficult <laughs> question. Steve Reich. 
fly low. Uh, I'd like to say Felicute, but then we wouldn't be able to uh, tell the story of Tom and uh, his bass playing and how we wanted to sign him, Square Pusher. Yeah, we, yeah, we wanted a fly... Square Pusher played his... I think it was his first London gig at Stealth in uh, our club and we wanted to sign him, but he went signed to Warp. Yeah. 